that's right. We're doing the uh, Hasin Creed uh, in honor of Christmas. So that's great. Uh, uh, this is a wonderful um, creed for us to uh, to read through, or be reminded of what it is that the uh, church fathers and church councils, councils deliberated over um, and worked hard to come to an understanding of what Scripture says uh, about who God is. Um, so, uh, it's not underlined, but I'm going to encourage you all to read along with me as we read this. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of the light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick, and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. Uh, that is just uh, a wonderful reminder for us. And I know as we read it together, sometimes I'm like, well, it's a lot to read. It's kind of a drudgery to work through, and we mess up and, and all of that. Uh, but I would encourage you on your own time to read through uh, these church creeds um, and maybe even read a little bit about how they came about. Each and every one of these uh, was formulated, uh, came about to combat a heresy that was uh, prevalent in the day. And the wording of these creeds is uh, super important and deliberate, and uh, nothing in them is accidental or, or haphazard. And it's just so interesting to read the history of these creeds and how they were formed, and, um, and how the Lord has preserved His church over the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So our uh, text for today, as we are taking a break from our study in Luke, uh, comes from the book of Luke, chapter 1. Um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33, but I'm going to ask you to stick a finger there and also open up your Bibles to the chapter to the book of 1 Samuel, uh, chapters 16 and 17. We're going to be kind of bouncing back and forth there as we uh, study the life of David. Um, so today we're looking at uh, the story of David. And a at least small amount of the life of David as we study uh, him as the true, as, as we study Jesus Christ as the true and better David. And in light of that, uh, our text today from the book of Luke 
uh, gives us kind of a, uh, a reminder of why it is significant that Jesus Christ um, is from the line and lineage of David. So, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today asking, as we open up your word, as we read uh, the scripture, Lord, that you would enlighten us as to uh, what it is that you have for us to learn in your word. Pray that today we would be faithful to the text, that we would, Lord, see clearly what it is that you're communicating to us here in the book of Luke and in the story of David told in 1 Samuel. I ask, Lord, that you would help me as I preach. You would help me to be truthful in everything I say, truthful to Scripture. Lord, that you would help me to speak clearly in a way that is applicable for us here today. And Lord, that can only be done by the help of the Holy Spirit. So I ask us help as we study today your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, as we start today, I know Luke is where I'm kind of uh, bouncing off of. Uh, I think it's appropriate as we celebrate this season to recognize why it is that we are looking at Jesus as the true and better David. Uh, because this passage, along with many others in the New Testament, actually calls us back to the Old Testament and many stories that are told there. And there is an unfortunate trend, an unfortunate reality of how most people... Uh, read Old Testament stories. Uh, actually, if you were here when we teach through the book of Ecclesiastes, Stan mentioned in, uh, in one of his sermons how most people, and I think all of us can probably admit that we're, that we're guilty of this, uh, tend to read Old Testament stories and put themselves in the position of the main character. We tend to read these Old Testament stories as though we were the one uh, doing the thing, or as though we can do the things that are told in the Old Testament um, usually thinking, all right, you know, how does, how does this apply to me? What does this mean for me? Like, if I were Moses, like, what, you know, what would I need to do? Things like that. And we don't just do this with the Bible, right? I mean, we do this in all sorts of cases. When we, when we watch a movie, when we read a book, we always tend to imagine ourselves as the main character, as the hero, right? I mean, no one, when they watch Star Wars, like, pictures themselves as Jar Jar Binks, right? I mean, just this nobody character, or, and certainly I don't think... Many people really imagine themselves as, know, as Emperor Palpatine or, or Darth Maul or, or anything. We tend to imagine ourselves as Luke Skywalker, right? Or Obi-Wan Kenobi or Rey. Uh, we imagine ourselves and, and picture ourselves and align ourselves with the hero of the story. And there's a tendency that we have to do the same thing 
with Scripture, to read these Old Testament stories mm -hmm. and to put ourselves in the position of the main character. And this is tragically true of the story that we're going to read today, the story of David and Goliath. This is a story that time and time again has been used to uh, build up Christian moralism, to uh, tell people that you can do anything, you can conquer your giants just like David, right? We've heard this. I mean, if I'm being honest, the majority of sermons that are preached about this text in 1 Samuel chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath, are taught from that perspective of how can we be like David, putting ourselves in his shoes, right? How to conquer your giants. There's even a movie called Facing the Giants, right? Which is uh, kind of this similar idea. And even the phrase, uh, uh, David and Goliath's story, is, is used commonly to describe situations in, in sports or or in uh, news stories, uh, depicting always us as David, right? But the reality is, and what my hope for us today, is that we'll see that this story, along with most Old Testament stories, is not a picture of ourselves and how we can be great and how we can do awesome things, but rather it's a picture of Christ and how he is the true hero in the story, how he is the one who actually is the one represented by the life of David. So as we deal with our story today, here in, in 1 Samuel and, and a little bit in Luke, I want us to, to look and see the parallels between the lives of David and the life of Jesus, and how the story of David, specifically as we look at the story of, of David's uh, rise onto the scene and, and his facing of Goliath, points to the true and better David, which is Jesus Christ. So my first point today is point number one, an over or excuse me, an underwhelming introduction. An underwhelming introduction. David first comes onto the scene in 1 Samuel chapter 16 when he was anointed, anointed to be king by the prophet Samuel. Samuel comes to the house of Jesse as he is instructed by the Lord. He's instructed to go to the house of Jesse. The Lord says, I will show you the one that you will anoint to be king of Israel. So Jesse goes, or, or excuse me, um, Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, and he comes and he sees his sons, and, and he sees his eldest son first. He sees his son Eliab and says, wow, surely this is the guy that the Lord has chosen to be king. But in fact, that was not who the Lord had chosen. Uh, the Lord, in fact, said, don't look on his outward appearance, because that's not what I'm looking at. He said, the Lord looks at the heart, is what he tells Samuel, in verse 7 of chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man sees the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. <laughs> so, so the next son comes by, right? And Samuel thinks, Oh, maybe this is it. And again, nope, the Lord rejects him. The next son comes by. Nope, the Lord rejects him. Seven of Jesse's sons come by, before finally, uh, after none of them is chosen to be king, Samuel asks Jesse, do you have any other sons? And Jesse is like, well, there is still the youngest son of mine, but he's out with the, with the shepherds. Jesse didn't even think that it was important enough or possible that David could be king to bring him in from the field, from shepherding. Like, Samuel is here to anoint the next king, and it's going to be one of Jesse's sons, and Jesse brings all of his sons in front of him, except David. 
I mean, he doesn't even think, ah, there's no way it could be, it could be David, little David, my youngest, I'm going to be no Have you seen Eliab, right? David was the most unlikely choice of Jesse's sons. And this was an amazing turn of events, uh, that David was the one to be anointed king. And indeed, he comes before him, and the Lord says, this is the one, this is the one I have chosen, and Samuel anoints him to be king. And it was amazing for many reasons, one of which was the fact that David was not the son of the king. As we know, usually, the, the typical situation was that the heir to the throne, the one who would succeed the current king, was the king's son, right? His firstborn son. He would be the one that would be heir to the throne. That's how it was normally passed on. That's how monarchs are supposed to operate. But instead, this is some stranger... Uh, son of Jesse, not a son of the king, who is now anointed to be king. David is in, introduced in scripture and really to the nation of Israel in the most unlikely, unexpected way. Even Samuel the prophet didn't expect this. That's why he assumed Eliab, Jesse's firstborn, David's oldest brother, uh, would, would be the king. He looked at him. He assumed he was the chosen one. Because by his outward qualities, one might expect uh, that he would be king. He had everything that you would expect a king to look like. He had the, uh, the height. He had the hair. He had the bob. Like he had everything that you would expect in a great king, just like Saul. That was the same story when Saul was anointed to be king. Yet God chose David, the youngest of his sons, not the son of the king. Even if Jesse were the king, even if David's dad were the king, he still would not have inherited the throne, right? Because he had seven older brothers. He was not only not a child of the king, but he was the youngest uh, of all of his father's children. Everything pointed to the fact that David would not be the chosen one. Even when he comes before Samuel and, and his appearance is described, uh, the book of 1 Samuel describes his appearance as ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And we read this, and we can be quick to assume, oh, well, David sounded, you know, pretty nice, like maybe he was the kind of guy you would expect to leave the country. But, but the point here in, in 1 Samuel is not to portray David in this light as like, oh, you know, someone who, maybe he does look like he could be king, but rather to describe him as someone who was young, uh, a very young child, immature, uh, and in fact, small. That's what they're getting at, the, the writer of 1 Samuel is getting at when he says uh, that he was handsome and had beautiful eyes. He was describing it in ways that, that make you think of someone who was small, weak, young, not someone who was uh, hardened by, by hard work and battle, but someone who was young. The fact is that the greatest king to ever occupy Israel's history books came onto the scene in the most underwhelming and unlikely way imaginable. And then we look at Jesus. Like David, Jesus comes onto the earthly scene in a most underwhelming and unlikely way also. We see indications of this in verses 26 and 27 of Luke, uh, chapter 1, where it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Though Jesus came by extraordinary means, being born of a, of a virgin, the rest of the details surrounding Jesus' entrance into the earth were exceptionally ordinary. 
very place where the Messiah was to come and live was, was underwhelming even. The city of Nazareth. Now, now it's called a city here in our text in, in Luke, but that's really kind of a generous title. Uh, the, the writer is doing that more just to indicate it was a place where there were people, there was, there was some amount of, of an economy, um, a, a community of people. It wasn't, you know, people living in a, in a nomadic state all separated from each other. But that's about it. Like, this wasn't some great uh, metropolis uh, here uh, being described in the city of Nazareth. It was small. It was insignificant. Uh, we get an indication of this in the book of John. Whenever uh, Nathaniel is told that the Messiah has come from Nazareth, what does he say? He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is the way this city was thought about. It was, it was small, insignificant, nothing. Not only was the place underwhelming where Jesus came, but also the people that he came to. The promised king, the coming Messiah, to save his people, was born into the house of some carpenter named Joseph and some woman named Mary. By all accounts, these people were nobodies. The only thing that, that Joseph had was that he was of the line and lineage of David. Like, that was it. By, by all other accounts, they were nobodies. Why would the, the Messiah, the future coming king, be born to them? They were not royalty. They were not rich. They couldn't even find a place to stay when they go back to Bethlehem for the, for the tax. And yet our sovereign God is working as he so often does in this situation, choosing the least likely of people and places to accomplish his will. The same that was true of David is also true of Christ. Point number two. He was a humble and faithful servant. So David was anointed to be king by Samuel. But keep in mind that even after this anointing, there was quite a bit of time that passes between when David was anointed and when David goes and fights the lion. This didn't happen the next day. And what was David doing during this time? David was humbly and faithfully serving. He was apparently still a shepherd, still tending his father's sheep. And by the way, the job of the shepherd is not one that people were like rushing to go do. You didn't have people like going to school for shepherding. Uh, it, it was a job that was hard work and yet required very little skill. It was, it was a job usually done by either a slave or like a social reject, someone who was kind of separate from society. No one wanted these jobs, the, the job of a, of a shepherd. And yet that's what David was doing. Don't you think it might have been kind of hard for David after being anointed to go back to this job? I mean, I know it would have been for me if I were David. Like when my dad's like, all right, back out to the fields. I mean, if, if it's me, you know, my pride and being human, I guess it seems like, I'd be like, uh, Dad, I'm the Lord's anointed. I can't go out and tend the sheep. Are you serious? Send one of the other brothers to do that. They're not going to be king. Like, I can't be doing that. I mean, I know I, I would have thought that at least. I probably would have been a lot more like, uh, like Simba on The Lion King, right? Or when he's told he's going to be king, he's like going out and stripping stuff. He's like, oh, I just can't wait. Like, that would have been me if I were David. I'm pretty sure. Uh, prideful, arrogant, not wanting to go back to the life 
of a shepherd. He's the future king. But yet this is exactly what he does. We see something very significant here from the life of David that, that we may need to make sure we don't miss. That even after being anointed, David spends the next several years of his life in humble and faithful service. David doesn't try to pull rank over his brothers or over his father. Instead, he is obedient and serves as he is told. Even when David comes to the battle where he faces Goliath, he does so only because he's delivering some food to his brothers like his father told him to do. The, the overwhelming marks of David's life that come out in Scripture are love of God and humble obedience and faithfulness. If we were to set aside two things like these mark David's life, it would be those two things. Now see how this is true even more in the life of Christ. This is God incarnate who came down to this earth and humbled himself under the parental authority of Joseph and Mary. Jesus didn't start his earthly ministry until he was like 30 years old. What did he do in the meantime? He submitted to his mother and his father. He submitted to the Jewish leaders and the authorities of the time. And he probably did exactly what his father did. He was a carpenter. This is God incarnate. The one spoken about in John 1 who was there at the beginning of time. Who helped to create the entirety of everything we see. Who has now humbled himself and is living under the authority of earthly parents and earthly authorities. Even in his ministry, the defining mark of Christ's life is not consuming fire or death-defying feats, but humility. Humility is the defining mark of Jesus' life and work here on earth. We see this as he washes his disciples' feet, and as he patiently teaches his disciples, even when it seems like they're really, really hard-headed. This again serves to remind us the difference between God's economy and the world's economy. Because see, the world would have us believe what Samuel believed, that Eliab should be the king, the guy who, who meets those standards, that he's the best choice for king, the one who's strong, the one who's powerful, the one who's tall, macho man, not the little boy out keeping sheep. But in God's economy, he uses those who humble themselves and serve faithfully. No matter what their physical stature is or how talented they are, in God's economy, victory is always won for the least likely. Well, that brings us to point number three. A mighty and comprehensive victory. So we come now to the climax of the story of David's life. This is a story that everyone knows. This is a story that everyone loves. And this is a story that everyone tends to put themselves into. What we've seen so far, been looking at, could probably be described as kind of the making of the hero. Now we see this hero in action in 1 Samuel chapter 17. The story starts out by introducing us to this great warrior of the Philistines. His name is Goliath, who comes out to challenge the Israelites in battle. He comes out to challenge these men of war that have come out for Israel to fight. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 8 through 10, as we are introduced to Goliath. Chapter 17 in 1 Samuel, verses 8 through 10. He stood 
and shouted at the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard this, heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Here we're, we're introduced to this great warrior of the Philistines. This intimidating figure who has come out and challenged the lines of Israel. He's laid down the gauntlet. He said, I am here to fight. If you send out your greatest warrior and he beats me, then you guys win. We'll be your slaves. But if I beat him, then you guys will be our slaves. And the Bible tells us that he did this every morning and every evening for 40 days. For 40 days this goes on, where this Philistine comes out to defy the ranks of Israel, morning and night, over and over again. And what do they do? They're terrified. Saul, the one who is described as being tall, great in stature, standing like head and shoulders above the rest, the Bible tells us, is cowering in his tent. Each and every one of them are afraid at this man. Now there's some debate over the actual size of Goliath. There are some texts that say that he was six cubits in a span. That'd be about nine and a half feet. And there's other texts that say that he was four cubits in a span, which would put Goliath right around six nine. And I mention this just to say that, that whatever the case, whether he's six nine or whether he is nine and a half feet tall, this is clearly a, an opposing force. Uh, this man who probably even has a reputation of killing everyone in his path. He was a man of great size, great strength, that struck fear into the hearts of the Israelites. And this enemy appeared to the Israelites to be unbeatable. Therefore, they tucked tail and ran. And then David arrives. And I love when David comes onto the scene. Like I said, he, he was there only because he was delivering food to his brothers, right? His dad's like, hey, take this food to your brothers and maybe report back to me as to how they're doing, how things are going. So David goes humbly to serve. He was not coming to, to the battle to try and catch a glimpse of the action as his uh, brother accuses him of. Uh, he's not coming to try and like look for a way to, to be boosted to the top and take over uh, as king of Israel. That's not what he's doing here. He's, he's here out of humble service to his father. But I love when he arrives and he hears this Philistine, sees this man coming out and defying the lines of Israel, and in David's mind, defying the true God in this action. And David says this in verses 26. Uh, verse 26 of our text here in 1 Samuel 17 says this, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that, she, that he should defy the armies of the living God? I love David's question because David doesn't say, Hey, like, why don't we get together and like formulate a plan? Maybe if we come up with a plan, we, we can beat this guy. Maybe if we like train someone really, really, really good, uh, we can you know, put an end to this. What does David do? He jumps straight to, 
hey, what's going to happen to the dude who kicks this guy's butt? Because obviously it's going to happen, right? David jumps straight to the question of what will happen for the man who defeats him because he assumes that victory is a given thing. He thinks, obviously, this guy will be defeated since he is out here defying, blaspheming the living God. He says, this is a Philistine. God has already told us that we will defeat them in the book of Joshua. And here he comes out to blaspheme and defy God. Of course God is going to defeat him. He assumes it to be a given thing. It's an obvious thing. So he jumps straight to, so what's going to happen to the guy who, who, who beats him? So he's obviously going to be beaten. Yet all of the warriors in the camp, including Saul, there was not found a man willing to go face this giant, except David. And it's not because David looked at the giant and then looked at himself, like sized him up and was like, I think I could take him, you know. That wasn't David's mindset. He wasn't basing this on some mathematical equation of like, you know, the reach of his arms, my eyes. It was not like that. He didn't think he had some sort of great advantage. In fact, the Philistines at the time had uh, great uh, advantages in their technology over the Israelites. They were very advanced in their use of, of metals and, and bronze in their weaponry and in their armor. As a part of why they were such an intimidating force. And it's not that David sized him up and decided he could beat him. It was because David trusted God. And so after dealing with some criticism from his brothers, uh, after declining Paul's armor, this young shepherd goes out onto the battlefield to come face to face with this great warrior that no one else would take on. And after a little bit of trash talk, the fight commences in verses 48 and 49, if you want to turn there. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. I can only imagine the hush that had to come over the battlefield at this point. Both sides, over, over the Israelites and over the Philistines. Like as, as quickly as this thing started, boom, like that, it was over. The Philistine was down. The champion was down. No sooner had the fight begun than this great champion was making out with the ground, bested by a little shepherd boy. And the word that's translated forehead here in verse 49 likely referred to something uh, other than his head, other than his forehead. Uh, it probably referred to a piece of armor that was protecting Goliath's shin. This is the same word that's, that's translated as a uh, piece of armor covering the leg earlier in the text. And the reason that, this, uh, that I point this out is because while this blow was certainly a debilitating strike, like where David hit him, it took him down. I mean, that's what the Bible says when it says, uh, that he fell on his face to the ground, which I think is interesting wording. Uh, but the final strike, the death blow to Goliath, comes in the next paragraph, starting in verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, and cut off his head with it. 
When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. David ultimately killed Goliath, not with his, with his sling, not with that stone, but he killed him by severing his head with his own sword. This was the way David finished off the giant, killed him. Finally, ultimately, comprehensively, this is how it was done. Well, there's, a, there's an unfortunate problem with many retellings of this story, besides the fact that we often put ourselves as David, uh, but that is the fact that this part gets left out, right? I, I mean, I, I grew up with VeggieTales, right? I loved it, and, and I think it benefited me in some ways. It also left me confused in a lot of ways when it comes to Scripture. Uh, and this is one case from the story of VeggieTales. This never happens. You don't get to the part where David cuts off Goliath's head. I think they're you know, trying to make it more palatable to children or, or to their audiences. And this happens a lot sometimes, where, where we'll, we'll edit these stories to make them more palatable. But in doing this, you lose a key part of the story, a necessary part of the story that, that must be said, that must be heard. And that's that the, the battle wasn't over when David slung his stone at Goliath. The battle wasn't over until David went over to Goliath, picked up his giant sword, and decapitated him, severed his head. There's an important point to be made here, the fact that David cut off the giant's head. There's symbolism that's at work here that specifically connects this event to the redemptive story laid out in Scripture. Think about Genesis 3.15, where the promised one would come, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Crush the head of the serpent. What does David do to defeat Goliath? He cuts off his head, severs his head. As we read this story, we're intended to be drawn back to the promise made in Genesis 3, that one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. But we are also intended to be drawn to the climax of the redemption story in the New Testament. You see, the great enemy that we face is sin and death. And we, like the Israelites, need a representative. We need someone who is able and willing to go and fight this giant for us. Because we cannot defeat him. We are unable to face Goliath. We are unable to defeat the enemy that we face, but the good news is we don't have to. Because like Israel in the story of David and Goliath, we have a representative. Jesus, like David, was our representative. When Jesus defeated sin and death, he did so on behalf of all his people. On behalf of all who would believe in his name, when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, from the grave the third day, he defeated the enemy on our behalf. That was the end of it. Death has been defeated at its own game. It was like Jesus took the sword of death and chopped death's head off with it. In dying, Jesus defeated death in the grave. The head of the serpent has been crushed. The seed of the woman has been victorious on our behalf. So I would be remiss if I did not remind you again that the story of David and Goliath is not about you. It's not about your victory over your giants. The story of David and Goliath is about Christ and his victory over sin and death on our behalf. 
He is the true and better David. And as his people, like Israel, we simply reap the benefits. We reap the reward of his victory on our behalf. So we, we look primarily today at the story of David and Goliath, at this specific episode. But that's just one moment in the life of this man, in the life of David. In fact, David went on from here to be the greatest king that Israel had ever seen. In fact, he's talked about more in Scripture than any other of Israel's kings. He wrote many of the Psalms that we read. And he, has, he demonstrated great humility, great wisdom throughout much of his life as king. And he conquered many of the enemies of God's people. He brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. He was truly the greatest king that Israel had ever seen. It's therefore no coincidence that Jesus is born in the lineage of David. It's no coincidence. This was, the, this was intended to appoint, the people, to appoint the people of Israel back to the fact that Jesus would in fact be the greater David. Greater even than their greatest king. He would be like David, but greater. The prosperity and joy that was experienced under David's reign was merely a foretaste of that which was to come in Christ Jesus. It was just a taste. That's why Luke says, at the end of our text, verses 32 and 33 in the chapter 1, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And, his king, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is truly the true and better David because he is the greatest and final king. He sits now on the throne, working on our behalf, building his kingdom. That, my friends, is reason to rejoice this season. That is reason to celebrate. Because when we think of Jesus lying in the manger, as Matt said when he, when he started this series off, he didn't stay there. He, he didn't stay a, a baby in the manger here just uh, to bring good tidings to people who would come and see this little baby. No, Jesus came to this earth to be the hero that we needed, to conquer sin and death on our behalf, to be the true and better David. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so, so much for your word. Lord, as we read the story of David, the story of his fight against Goliath, his faithfulness, his humility, Lord, may we be reminded of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be encouraged by the fact that we aren't David. Lord, may we praise you for the fact that we are not David. We don't have to go out and face our enemy. We don't have to go out and face the giant because we have a representative who has already faced the giant, who has already defeated him, who has already severed his head. Lord, we need now only trust in his finished work for our salvation, for our victory over sin and death. It is a guaranteed thing. Lord, I pray today that for, for anyone in here, Lord, who has not recognized this, who thinks that that they have to fight their giants alone. 
who thinks that what it means to be a Christian is to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and to do everything you can to work hard and do good and therefore somehow defeat your enemies. Lord, I pray that they would hear this and hear the good news of the gospel. That we don't have to do it. In fact, we can't do it. We cannot defeat sin and death. We cannot defeat the life. But Lord, we don't have to because you've done it on our behalf. For all of those who trust in you, come by faith, relying on the finished work of Christ, there is victory to be had and to be celebrated. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're going to take up the Lord's Supper. Um, if I could get uh, Adam and Eve, if you would come help me with the Lord's Supper.